Amen. So Ephesians chapter 4, before we jump in, uh, some of you probably know this already, but just in case you didn't know, there's kind of this, it's a pretty major uh, series of hockey games going on right now. Has anybody been keeping up with the hockey games, with the Preds? And hey, I've got to, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm pretty proud. So you, you may not know this. I moved here from Canada. And in case you didn't know, like Canada's, they're kind of crazy about hockey. Like it's kind of a big deal up there. And I have been really impressed with the Preds fans. Like I was watching the game last night and they kept showing these shots of Broadway. And it really reminded me of when I lived in Vancouver and the Canucks were in the finals. Like it was a very similar feel. Like people just crammed downtown cheering, going crazy. It was really exciting for my family to watch, to be in a city where people are pumped about hockey again. Uh, Hopefully all of you know what I'm talking, you guys know what I'm talking about? The Preds, you guys keeping up with the Preds? Big win last night. So my kids, I I have two boys, they're age seven and five. And, they love hockey. Now, they were both born in Canada. I think that has something to do with it. I think it's just part of being born in that country. You have to love hockey. And so they've been really excited that, um, that the Predators are in the Cup Finals. And uh, I remember we sat down to watch game one, and it was pretty hilarious because up until that point, neither one of my boys, age seven and five, neither one of them had ever heard of the Pittsburgh Penguins. They didn't even know that was a hockey team, you know, and yet game one, we sit down to watch the game. And I remember the first thing out of Elijah's mouth, my seven-year-old, he sits down and he's like, man, I hate the Penguins. And I'm like, you've never even heard of the Penguins, you know? And he's like, he was, yeah, but I hate them. And he's like, they should be called the Pittsburgh dumb Penguins, you know? And he starts coming up with all these like, genius seven-year-old insults, you know, uh, for the Penguins. And through the whole game, you just kept talking bad about them. And it just kind of hit me, you know, that this is kind of the way that their brains think. They're seven and five, and my boys are still trying to figure the world out. And so one of the things that they automatically do is they assume that anything that is different from the way we do it as a family is is wrong or maybe even dumb, you know, it's just like, it's dumb. And they'll come and ask me these questions, you know, they'll say things like, hey, dad, People who drive Hondas are smarter, right, Dad? Right, Dad? And I'm like, well, I don't, no, not really. I mean, we drive Hondas, but it doesn't mean that everybody that's smart has to drive a Honda. Or they'll say things like, hey, Dad, people that don't recycle aren't very smart, are they? And I'm like, well, no, I don't know that I'd say that in public either, but that's not really a smart thing to say, you know? And, and it's just their way of thinking, you know? They have this tendency to name the way that we do things as a family as the right way, and that everything else is wrong or dumb or whatever word they're really into at the moment. And, you know, we laugh about this because we know this is kind of how kids are as they figure out the world. But, you know, the reality is this childish tendency really is coursing through the current of our culture, is it not? I mean, that, that even as adults, we are obsessed with wanting to be right. We are obsessed with our own rightness. You know, and the thing is about our culture is that there's no shortage of issues for us to want to be right about. I mean, have you noticed that? Just in, within our country, I mean, if you pay attention to the news at all, it just seems like our country's so divided, right? Because there's all these issues that divide. There's seemingly infinite number of possibilities for division in our culture. I mean, you got, are you Democrat or Republican? You lean left or you lean right? Are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? Are you big government or limited government? Are you you into capitalist ideals or socialist ideals? Are you for the rich or for the poor? Is it black lives matter or is it all lives matter? Are you uneducated, uneducated? You're black, white, Hispanic, gender. What role does that play? Do we give it a role at all? Do we even want to say that gender matters? Do we harbor refugees or do we protect our borders? Do we promote climate change or do we allow industries to have the freedom to make things the way that they want to? And on and on and on. We could go with issues that, that seem to polarize us as a people. 
In an environment like this, if being right is the goal, then any differences between us quickly become barriers that tend to just drive us apart from one another. And we live in a divided and a fractured world that is in desperate need both for a message of unity but also for a picture of what unity can look like. And what I'm about to say, I really believe it even though it sounds crazy and audacious. Like I believe that the church, that the global family of Jesus followers, that the church is poised and called to be a window for the world to see what unity can and should look like. And I think that's what this text that we're gonna read together tonight is about. And if you're sitting there and you're not a follower of Jesus or you have a really sour taste in your mouth for the church and that statement rubs you the wrong way, I I just ask you to stick with me through this, okay? Stick with me. Let's read read this text real quick. This is what Paul writes, Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse one. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life that is worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace because there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord out of Ephesians chapter four. Now, if, if you haven't been with us on this series, I'll give you a quick snapshot of what this, this book of Ephesians is all about. It was written by a guy named Paul who, who is probably the most unlikely of characters to be writing a message of unity. I mean, the guy is a former terrorist who literally used to kill people for believing something different than him. And now he's experienced this radical transformation where he's writing about the importance of unity within humanity and within the people of God. He's writing this letter to a group of Christians in the first century that lived in a city called Ephesus. It's sort of been a city that in what is modern day Turkey. And these are people that have also experienced a major transformation through Jesus, and they have been given a new identity in Christ. In fact, one of the things that we can notice about Ephesians, we are halfway through the letter right now. And if you go back and you read chapters one through three, you will not find a single bit of instruction or command from Paul to the Ephesians. He doesn't give them any instructions. You know, it's interesting because we kind of come to the Bible expecting it to be a list of do's and don'ts. And I think what Paul is trying to communicate to the Ephesians and to us is that the gospel of Jesus is not so much a message of what you need to do, but a message about who we have become because of Jesus or who you are invited to become with Jesus. You see, Paul, all through Ephesians, the first three chapters, he has been reminding the Ephesian Christians of their identity Hey, you are one in Christ. You were dead. You've been raised in life. You've been given the spirit of God. This is who you are. You are the dwelling place of the holy God on earth. But in chapter four, Paul is going to kind of make a switch and he's going to begin giving some instruction. He's going to shift from this identity talk to some instruction for the Ephesian Christians. And what he starts with is what we just read. The first piece of instruction that he gives to these Christians is this message of unity Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's like Paul has been saying for three chapters, this is who you are, this is who you are, this is who you are. Now live a life that is worthy of the identity that you've been given. 
And so he starts with this call to unity. And tonight what we want to see is that Paul is going to identify the necessity of unity. And then we need to pay attention to the reality of our differences. And then I want us to look at the necessities needed for unity. So we're going to see the necessity for unity in the church. We're going to face the reality of our differences. And then we're going to look at the necessities that are needed for unity. Let's start with the necessity of unity. These are Paul's first words of instruction. Why in the world does he start here? Why does he start with this emphatic plea that they make every effort, that they stop at nothing to maintain unity within the church? There are several reasons he starts here. One is because this is, the, this is the natural starting place because it flows from this identity that he has been talking about. He says, this is your identity. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Jesus is making one new humanity. In other words, he looks at the Ephesian Christians and says, hey, listen, some of you come from Jewish descent. Some of you are not Jewish. You got Jews and Gentiles. And for the Jews, they've been divided from the Gentiles for since the, since the beginning of the Jewish people, he says, but Jesus is doing this new thing where he's taking those that are Jewish and those that are not Jewish and he's bringing them together to make one new humanity. That's the language that Paul uses in 2.15. One new humanity, all of humanity united in the name of Jesus. You see, this is just part of who we are as followers of Jesus. This is the identity that we have received, one new humanity. And so Paul says, live a life worthy of this calling to this identity that you have received. Verse four, you know, he says, we are one body, one body, that as followers of Jesus, we are members of one body, the body of Jesus Christ. Our calling, our identity is to be the body of Jesus. And we just kind of know that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for one body to attack itself, right? I've got a friend in Oregon, and she suffers from a disorder called lupus. And lupus is an autoimmune disorder where your body's immune system literally begins to attack and reject other parts of the body that are actually healthy. It doesn't take a medical professional to kind of understand that that's not a good situation. That when a body is rejecting things that the body needs and shutting it down, that we know that is a recipe for disaster. And so Paul says, listen, you are the body. There's only one body. We must make every effort to maintain unity and not be about attacking ourselves as one body. So it's an, unity is a necessity because it flows from the identity that we've been given in Jesus, but it's also a necessity because it's an invitation into the broader mission of Jesus. Do we really know, do we believe that the mission of Jesus in this world is unity? In chapter one of Ephesians, in verse 10, Paul says it this way, he says that God is up to something. God is thoroughly and diligently at work. In verse 10, he says, to bring unity to all things, both in heaven and on earth under Jesus Christ. This is God's aim. This is his mission to unite, to bring together, to take things that are fractured and make them into one. And man, it doesn't take much to see that this is a needed mission in our world, not just in our nation, not just in our country, but a needed mission in the world. I mean, think about the way we started our time tonight, praying as over the last week, we have seen hundreds of lives taken because of the acts of terrorism, multiple countries, multiple cities, multiple continents. We all know this. We all know that there's a fracture. There's division in the world that so desperately needs unity. 
And this mission of unity does not just happen because humanity decides to work harder on being nice to each other. Now, it only happens under the leadership of Jesus, that Jesus, through his humility, through his self-sacrifice, through his divine power, he is the one to bring unity into the world. It only happens through him. And he looks at us, the church, and he says, listen, if the world is going to see the unity that I'm offering and that I'm pursuing, it has to start with you, my body. So you see, unity is a necessity because it flows from the mission of Jesus. It doesn't just flow from his mission. I believe unity flows out of the heart of Jesus. I know this. There's this beautiful picture that we get in John chapter 17. In John 17, we have this amazing, unique gift of a glimpse, an intimate moment into the life of Jesus. It's moments before he goes to the cross to give up his life. And we have this glimpse of the prayer that Jesus prays right before he dies. In John 17, we find Jesus praying for himself, but not just for himself. He prays for himself so that God would be glorified. But he also prays for his closest friends, those who were the apostles. But he doesn't stop with praying for the apostles. He begins to pray for all who would come to know him because of the message of the apostles. And that includes everybody who's ever come to know the message of Jesus because it all started with those men. And this is what he writes. This is Jesus' prayer for us in John 17, verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for the apostles alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Oh, Father, that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look at verse 23. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete what? Unity. And then the world will know. When they are brought to unity, the world will know that you have sent me, Father, and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Do we know that the world sees the love of God when we as Christ's people are united, as Christ and the Father are united? When we love one another, we become a window through which the world can look to see the unity that God so longs for for his people. So you see, unity is a necessity because it flows from our identity, because it's an invitation into the broader mission of God, and it finds its origin in the very heart of Jesus himself. So this is the necessity for unity within Christ's church, the global family of Jesus' followers. And yet we have to be honest as well, right? We have to come face to face, and we've got to deal with the reality of our differences We can identify the necessity of unity, but if we cannot look at the reality of our distances, we're going to be at a gridlock. You know, the honest truth is, if you were to make the claim that the church is supposed to be the picture of unity that inspires the world, you say that to almost anyone outside of these walls and you will be met with laughter or scoffing. Because the honest truth, the unfortunate honest truth is that the church is divided. We've all seen this. I mean, just look around the world, you know, we've got 
Orthodox Christians and Catholic Christians and Protestant Christians. You've got Coptic Christians and Messianic Christians. There's liturgical Christians and charismatic Christians, Reformed Christians and Wesleyan Christians and Reformation Christians. There's high church and there's simple church. There's missional church and attractional church, traditional church and relevant church. You could go on and on and on with all the ways that the church has been broken down and fragmented into different groups or different preferences. So how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile this kind of picture of division that we see at work in Christ's church and this idea that the church is supposed to be the picture of unity? I, I think it begins with us coming to grips with this idea that to be united does not mean that we will necessarily always agree. Being united does not necessarily mean we have to agree on everything. I know that sounds like a paradox, so let me, let me let me unpack that a little bit. This is the way that we talk about this at Ethos. If you've ever been to an open house at Ethos, open house is just a place for people who are considering being a part of our family that want to know more about what that means to be part of the family, about who we are as a family. We come together for a thing called open house where we just cast vision for what makes us us and what does it mean to be a part of the family at Ethos. And one of the things that we say at open house is we say, listen, as a church, as a local expression of Christ's body, we strive for unity but not uniformity. Strive for unity, but not uniformity, because there's a difference in unity and uniformity. We talk very clearly about the things that unite us. So in open house, we say, hey, listen, as a church, we have what we call our closed-handed beliefs. These are the things that we rally around, the things that we won't falter on. These are the things that we are united on. But then we also say, hey, you know what? We also have open-handed beliefs. And our closed-handed beliefs are really simple. There's six of them. Close-handed beliefs as a church family are this, that we believe in God the Father. We believe in God that he was the creator, he was the origin and the beginning of everything that he always has been and he always will be. We believe that God the Father is supremely kind, supremely loving, and he is supremely just and supremely holy. The second belief is this, that we believe in God the Son. We believe that God put on flesh and came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ because he knew that all humanity needed the message of reconciliation to God, their creator, and he was going to come and lay down his life so that others could know him. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and the third is we believe in God the Spirit that when Jesus rose from the dead and went back to his Father, that the Father and the Son sent the Spirit, the spiritual presence of the Lord God Almighty to live within his people that all who call upon the name of the Lord can have the very holy divine presence of God within them. Those are the first three of our close-handed beliefs. After that, you know, we believe in the church we believe the church was the chosen vessel for God's uh, reconciliation of the world, that the Spirit of God dwells within the people of God, and that the people of, the God, of God have a unique mission to display the glory and the goodness of God to the world around us. The fifth close-handed belief is that we believe in the Bible. We believe that the Bible was the inspired Word of God, and it is in this book that we learn about who God is and what He's like and so in turn, we learn about who we are called to be and the identity that he longs to give us. And the sixth close-handed belief is that we believe in the need for salvation and we believe in the hope of salvation. That all of humanity, because of sin and brokenness, needs to be reconciled to God the Creator and that salvation comes only in the name of Jesus. And these are our close-handed beliefs, our rallying cry for us as a church. 
And I remember one night we, we had an open house and I had just finished teaching on all of these things. And immediately after open house wrapped up, this guy kind of makes a beeline to me and he asked me this question. He says, hey, I, I really like this idea of closed-handed and open-handed, but man, I got to ask a question. He said, those, those closed-handed beliefs that you named, they seem so kind of generic. He's like, it's almost as if any Christian church could rally around those beliefs. And I said, yeah, that's the idea. Like, this is the center of what we believe it means to be a follower of Jesus, and so they're non-negotiable. Like, this is the rallying cry for our faith. He goes, well, how does that work when you've got all these other beliefs that are open-handed? And it was a great question, because the reality is, even here in our church family, this local expression of Jesus followers, yeah, there are places where we have differences. There are places where we disagree. And so just for example, you know, we say this at open house every time, you know, like within our church body, we have people that have very different beliefs about the consumption of alcohol. You'll talk to some people within our church who think that Christians should not consume alcohol. And then on a Sunday morning, they might be sitting right next to somebody who brews beer in their bathtub, you know, and it's like, how do you reconcile these two things? They seem to be so different. And the belief is that we can be united and understand that there will be differences of opinions and preferences on certain things. And let's just be honest for a minute about some of the differences that we face within our church family. You know, within our church family, there are different preferences for worship. There are some who, who would prefer to sing traditional hymns. There are some who would love to sing contemporary music. There are some who would rather raise their hands and clap and jump and pump their fists in the middle of worship. And there are others who would prefer to sit silently and contemplatively reflect on the glory of God. And we believe that all can exist together in the body of Jesus. That there can be unity without uniformity. You know, we know that within our church, there are different opinions about communion. When should communion be taken? How should it be taken? What should it look like when we break up and how often should we take communion? There are differences of opinions on that. There are differences of opinions within our church family, different beliefs and backgrounds on the belief around baptism and when that should happen and how it should look and what it means and what actually happens. You know, there's different opinions on that. There are different opinions about our gender differences between male and female and what that means for our time together when, when we're with one another. You'll find within our church people who are socially progressive, and you'll find people that are socially conservative. There are some incredible differences right here within our own little church family. And you know, I know that the reality is that when we begin to talk about some of these differences, it can be a little overwhelming. And we can be tempted not to talk about them at all for fear of the division that it might cause. But here's the thing, if we choose to ignore some of our differences, we're not really striving towards the radical type of unity that Jesus longs for for his church. We're really settling for a surface level tolerance with one another, not a deep level of love as we journey together with our differences in mind. And the invitation of Jesus is for us to be united even in the midst of our differences. You know, the good news is, is that when Paul wrote these words to the Ephesian Christians, he was not writing to a homogeneous audience that was devoid of differences. No, within that Ephesian church, you would have had Jews and you would have had non-Jews. You would have had men and women, husbands and wives, single and married. You would have had Roman citizens and non-Roman citizens. You would have had slave and free, rich and poor, former pagans and polytheists and current monotheists. 
all these different worldviews coming together. You know, we don't have to write off Paul as an idealist who did not understand the modern complexities of human differences. Paul was fully aware of the differences that threatened to divide. And so he not only wrote with the mandate to maintain unity, but I believe he also provided instruction on how we maintain that unity. I think it's so interesting that he begins his whole section on instruction with this call to unity because Paul knows, he says, hey, I'm about to lay out some instructions for how you guys do life together. And I just know because you're people, you're going to disagree about the way that you're supposed to interpret the thing that I'm writing to you about how you live. (laughs) He says, so I'm going to give you a handle. I'm going to name some of the necessities that you're going to need in order to maintain the unity that Christ longs for in his body. Let's look what he says. In verse 2, we find the necessities. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another. Maintain peace. I want to walk through these necessities real quickly just so we have a grasp on them. You know, Paul starts with being humble. He says, hey, if you want to maintain unity within Christ's body, it begins with being completely humble. This idea of being humble, it kind of just means a loneliness, a lowliness of the mind. But often I think that means that we have to force ourselves to think less of ourselves. I gotta, I gotta think more lowly of myself. But being humble is not thinking more lowly of yourself so much as it is just to stop thinking about yourself so much. You know, humility, being humble, it tells us I don't have to hold so tightly to my beliefs just for the sake of being right. It's humility is acknowledging that my rightness is not as important as the unity of the Spirit in Jesus' family. You see, here's the reality. All of us are on a journey. We're all journeying towards Christ. Jesus is the aim. He is the head of the body. He is the one we are striving for. And what Jesus says about himself He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So as we journey towards Jesus, it is this journey towards truth, not a journey towards our sense of rightness. Our goal is Jesus, not our rightness. And that as we journey towards Jesus, being humble means that we have a willingness to admit that we might actually be wrong on some things that when we get a glimpse of the eyes of Jesus, there are gonna be some things that he convicts us of that we were so thoroughly convinced we had right. Timothy Keller says it this way, I love what he says. He says, listen, if your God never disagrees with you, then you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. You see, none of us has a corner, a corner market on rightness or truth, but we are all journeying together towards that truth and being humble being humble means that we have this ability to admit that sometimes we're going to get it wrong. I read this week about a missionary to India. He had this amazing quote. This is what he said. He said, if I were to pick out two phrases that are necessary for spiritual growth, I would pick out these. I don't know, and I am sorry. Both of these phrases are evidences of deep humility. Man, when I read that... I, I just think about my own tendency to not want to say I don't know, my own tendency to not want to apologize in my marriage, 
in relationships where I know I've wronged someone else. I was reminded when I read that quote, actually, of my wife. Uh, there was this situation in Canada when we were church planners up there, and my wife was studying the Bible with a woman who is not a follower of Jesus. And I remember she came home one night, and she told me that they were in the middle of one of Paul's letters where there's some things that are hard to understand, and this woman that she was studying with just asked her, she said, I don't get that. Why would Paul write that? And I remember my wife just said, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And months later, when that woman ended up giving her life to Jesus, I remember she grabbed my wife and she said, you know, a turning point for me in my journey to accepting Christ was that night when you admitted to me that you didn't have all the answers, that you didn't know. She said, because every other Christian I'd ever been around, it seems all they'd been interested in was convincing me of their rightness and my wrongness. And I was so moved by my wife's humility, by her willingness to say, I don't know and the impact that had on another human heart. See, humility, being humble, it is the opposite of pride. See, pride always insists on having its own way. Pride insists on being right, even at the expense of a brother or sister, and so pride breeds division and contempt, whereas humility fosters unity and openness and love. And so the first necessity that we need for this journey towards humility towards unity. It's humility, to be completely humble, as Paul calls it. Then he keeps going. He says, be completely humble and be gentle. This word gentle is the ability to express humility in my words and my actions towards others. Gentleness is the behavior that flows from humility. If humility is the state of mind or the state of heart that we have, gentleness is what flows, the behavior that flows out of that. And what I love about gentleness is that gentleness occurs both when you're in the wrong and when you've been exposed to be in the right. Gentleness is when you firmly believe that you are right and yet you are in relationship with someone who differs from you completely. Gentleness is the ability to respond to somebody without a harsh word but with kindness and love in the face of sharp disagreement. I see this play out in marriage so often. You know, before I was a pastor, I was a marriage and family therapist, so I, I met with and counseled many couples, and I had many couples that sat in my office that had very clear points of tension and stress, and many times it was very clear that one spouse had very clearly offended the other spouse, but oftentimes the offended spouse in their desire to express their rightness and their innocence, they often would raise their voice. They often would get so defensive and so angry that even in the midst of their innocence, they became guilty. I love the way that Emerson and Sarah Egerich say this. They have this book called Love and Respect, and they say it this way. They say, listen, you can be right but wrong at the top of your voice. In other words, you can be in the right, but man, without gentleness... You're just a resounding gong. You're just producing resistance, not promoting unity. See, gentleness is what has to flow out of our humility. And as I was reflecting on this and talking with others about the sermon this week, I, I, I realized one of the areas for division that happens so much is often because of the result of a lack of gentleness. You know, much of the division that exists within the church is fueled by woundedness within the church. All those things that I say we disagree on, whether they be the things in our culture or the things within the church, that so often many people get wounded because of people's insistence on having their way and always having to be right. And I know that many of you have probably been wounded by the church, 
by people in the church who did not have humility or did not express gentleness in their response to you. And I want to say something to those of you that have been wounded. Please hear me. Like, your woundedness does not define you. That is not your ultimate identity. We have three chapters of Ephesians where Paul longs to remind us that our woundedness does not define us, but no, it is our identity in Christ that you, whether you've been wounded, no matter what has happened to you, your identity is that you are a child of the King, you are a dwelling place of the Lord Almighty, that the Holy God and His Spirit lives within you, even in the midst of your woundedness. And it's so important that we understand this for several reasons. One, Paul will go on in chapter four to say this later, and we're not there tonight, but he's going to say, listen, don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't let the devil have a foothold in your heart. You see, what the enemy would love to do is come in when we have been wounded and use that to make us bitter and to make us to begin to be the ones that respond without gentleness or humility. So if you've been wounded, I, I speak these words of identity over you. Your woundedness does not define you. You are a child of the king. And for those who have not been wounded, but you find yourself being frustrated with people that seem to always fight for change in the church, let me say this to you. If someone has been disagreeing with you in a hostile way, I just want to remind you that sometimes it is not them attacking your way of life or attacking you. Sometimes it is multiple layers of woundedness that are coming out. And the question for me is, can we as a church, can we be humble enough? Can we be gentle enough? And can we be bold enough to speak words of identity over one another? in the face of disagreement and conflict. Then in the middle of conflict, can we look at the person that's disagreeing with us and see, hey, I am in the same body with you, clinging to the same hope that you have. Paul says, be completely humble, be completely gentle. And then he says, be patient and bear with one another in love. I love this word patience. You know, so often we think that patience means that we never get annoyed or we never get our feathers ruffled. You know, patience is not avoiding getting annoyed, but no, patience answers the question of how we deal with annoyance. How will we deal with that person that seems so difficult to love, that always wants to disagree? How will we deal with the uncomfortable conversations? Do we disengage and avoid, or do we engage and love? You know, the traditional interpretation of this word patience is the phrase long-suffering. I love this phrase because it captures so well sometimes what it's like to journey with people who are different than us. Sometimes, sometimes our differences can be so uncomfortable that it feels like suffering with one another. And what Christ would say to us is, hey, will you be long-suffering? When you faced disagreements, are you we willing? Are we willing to journey long enough until we both get a glimpse of Christ and he helps us see which was right and which was wrong, or he helps us see that we've both been wrong and that we ultimately need his grace completely? Will we journey with another long enough to see that, or will we simply respond to disagreement with, I don't like that, you're wrong, get out of here, you're wrong. How will we respond? Patience? Paul says, be humble, be gentle. Be patient, bear with one another. Walk with one another for the long haul because you're journeying towards Jesus, the ultimate embodiment of truth, and he will reveal the truth to us. This is what I love, is that spiritual maturity in the Christian faith, it is not marked by being right all the time. No, spiritual maturity in the Christian faith is marked by humility, gentleness, patience, and love. 
This is the mark that we all long for. And so we've seen the necessity for unity within the church. We've seen, we've had to learn to face the reality of our differences while we cling to the necessities for unity of humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And I think that brings us kind of to the, the centerpiece of our time together every week. Paul is going to end by reminding us of the tie, the very thing that binds us together. Look what he says in verses four through six. He says, there is one body, there is one spirit, and you are all called to one hope. We all are hoping for the same thing. He says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. See what Paul is reminding us here. He's saying, listen, what, what binds you together, what binds us together as the people of God is this oneness that there is one God. There's one Father, there is one Son and Lord, and there is one Holy Spirit, and there is one calling that we have all received that we would fully allow the fullness of God to dwell within us, that we would be one because of Jesus Christ. See, this unity, this unity is not something that we are working towards so much as it is a reality that we are living into. Jesus has accomplished this. And he invites us to lean into it, the reality of his united body. And so as we come to communion, this, this act that has the very word, you know, communion, union, unity, these things are so closely related. When we come to communion, it is this act of being reminded that we gather together as one body, together with all of the followers of Jesus around the world that gather around that cup and that bread. And we are reminded there is one Lord that unites all of us. There's one body that unites all of us. There's one hope that unites all of us. And we take that bread that reminds us of the body that unites us. And we take that body into us and we're reminded that the same spirit lives in each and every one of us. And ultimately, we are a united family of God. And here is my invitation for us, maybe a challenge for some of us as we come to communion. I want to ask you, this is what I'd like for you to do tonight. If there is someone in your life with whom you are not currently united or someone that you feel divided or discord with, then during communion, go find them if they are here in this building. If they're not here, text them or call them. In your act of communion, just say to them, I am grateful to be a part of the body of Jesus with you, and I am sorry for any way that I may have contributed to the dissonance we feel. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a believer, you know, and you're looking at this and you're going, how in the world could the church possibly be a voice for unity? I, I just want you to know, I want to tell you, you know, we as the followers of Jesus, we are not oblivious to our differences. And I'm sorry for the way that we have misrepresented Christ to you. Even though we are aware of our differences, though, I want you to know that we are gratefully journeying towards the one who is actively working to bring unity in the world. And there is an open invitation to you to join us on that journey towards truth and unity, that there is a very real and very good and very loving God who is actively working to bring unity to the world. And if you want to know him, I would love to talk with you about him. I'd love to pray with you. Come find me or one of the, other, the others at the Respond Banner afterwards, and we'd love to talk with you. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to go take communion. As we take communion, let us pray that Christ would unite us in his love. Let's pray. Father, 
thank you that you are a God of unity, that you and your magnificent love and your magnificent very essence of your being, that you long to take fractured things and make them whole. You long to take divided people and make us one. Oh God, help us to lean into that. Thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross, an empty tomb, and the activity that you are currently doing in our world. Would you let your kingdom come? Your will be done. Would you come and unite us? Bring your one new humanity. Help us as your people, Lord, as we commune tonight, even in the act of communion, Lord, would you unite our hearts? Forgive us, Father, where we're divided. Give us humility. Give us gentleness. Give us patience. Give us your peace and your love. Come, Lord, come. Work amongst us as we commune with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.